Withdraw your blessings from me, all the gods, if I am lying. Let the words of magic slip from my mind. Let my spell components turn to dust. Let my scrolls burn. Let my hand be stricken from my wrist. She waited a moment, then resumed her seat. It is cold in here, she said, staring hard at Justarius. Should I build up the fire? She pointed her hand at the fireplace where the fire was dying and spoke a word of magic. Flames danced on the iron grate. The fire grew so hot the three had to draw back their chairs. LaDonna lifted her goblet and took a gulp. Nuatari has broken with Takesis? Parsalian asked in astonishment. He was seduced by sweet words and lavish promises. As was I. LaDonna said bitterly. The queen's sweet words were lies, her promises false. What did you expect? Justarius asked with a sneer. The dark queen has thwarted your ambition and hurt your pride. So now you come crawling back to us? I suppose you are in danger. You know the queen's secrets. Has she set the hounds upon you? Is that why you've come to Wayrith to hide behind our robes? I did discover her secrets, LaDonna said softly. She sat for long moments, staring at her hands. Her fingers were long and supple still, though the skin was reddened and drawn tightly over the fine bones. And yes, I am in danger. We are all in danger. That is why I've come back, risked my life to come back to warn you. Parsalian exchanged alarmed glances with Justarius. Both men had known LaDonna for many years. They had seen her in the magnificence of her power. They had seen her raging in anger. One of them had seen her soft and tender with love. LaDonna was a fighter. She had battled her way to the top of the ranks of the black robes by defeating and sometimes slaying in magical combat those who challenged her. She was courageous, a formidable foe. Neither man had ever seen the strong and powerful woman show weakness, neither had ever seen her as they saw her at that moment, shaken, afraid. There is a building in Naraka called the Red Mansion. Ariakas sometimes lives there when he returns to Naraka. In this mansion is a shrine to Takesis, the shrine is not as grand as the one in her temple. It is far more secret and private, open only to Ariakas and his favorites, such as Kitiara and my former pupil and his mistress, the wizardess Iolantha. To make a long story short, several of my colleagues were most horribly murdered. I feared I was next. I went to the shrine to talk to Queen Tekesis directly. Justarius muttered something. I know said LaDonna. Her hand shook, spilling the wine. I know, but I was alone, and I was desperate. Parsalian reached over and laid his hand upon her hand. She smiled tremulously and clasped her fingers over his. He was startled and shocked to see tears glimmer in her eyes. He had never before seen her cry. I was about to enter the shrine, when I realized that someone was already there. It was High Lord Kidiara talking to Ariakas. I used my magic to make myself invisible and listened to their conversation. 
You have heard of the Dark Queen's search for a man called Barum. He is known as the Everman, or the Green Gemstone Man. The Dragon Armies are all taxed with finding this man. We have been trying to discover why, said Parsalian. What makes him so important to Tachesis? I can tell you, said Ladana. If Tachesis finds Barum, she will be victorious. She will enter the world in all her might and power. No one, not even the gods, will be able to withstand her. She related the Everman's tragic story to her audience. The two men listened in astonishment and grief to the tale of Jasla and Barum, a tale of murder and forgiveness, hope and redemption. Parsalian and Justarius were silent, each turning over what he heard in his mind. Ladonna slumped in her chair and closed her eyes. Parsalian offered to pour her another glass of wine. Thank you, my dear friend. But if I drink any more, I will fall asleep where I sit. Well, what do you think? I think we must act, said Parsalian. I would like to do some investigating on my own, said Justarius crisply. Madame Ladonna will forgive me when I say that I do not entirely trust her. Investigate all you like, said Ladonna. You will find that I have spoken the truth. I am too exhausted to lie. And now, if you will excuse me. As she rose, she staggered with weariness and had to put her hand on the arm of the chair to steady herself. I cannot travel this night. If I could have a blanket in the corner of some novice's cell. Nonsense, said Parsalian. You will sleep in your chamber as usual. Everything is as it was when you left. Nothing was moved or altered. You will even find a fire in the grate. Ladonna lowered her proud head, then extended her hand to Parsalian. My old friend, thank you. I made a mistake. I admit it freely. If it is any consolation, I have paid dearly for it. Justarius rose with some difficulty, leveraging himself up out of the chair. Sitting for any length of time caused his crippled leg to stiffen. Will you also spend the night with us, my friend? Parsalian asked. Justarius shook his head. I am needed back in Polanthus. I bring more news. If you could wait one moment, madam. This will be of interest to you. On the twenty-sixth day of Ronmont, Raistlin Majir was found half-dead on the steps of the great library. One of my pupils happened to be passing and witnessed the incident. My pupil did not know who the man was, only that he was a wizard who wore the red robes of my order. That said, I do not think Raistlin will be of my order much longer, Justarius added. Today one of the local cloth dyers brought me word that a young man came to his establishment with a request to dye red robes black. It seems your sword has a flaw in it, my friend. Parsalian looked deeply troubled. You are certain it was Raislin Majir? The young man gave a false name, but there cannot be many men in this world with golden-tinged skin and eyes with pupils like hourglasses. But to make sure, I spoke to Astinus. He assures me the young man is Raislin. 
He is taking the black robes, and he is doing so without bothering to consult the conclave as is required. He's turning renegade, Ladonna shrugged. You have lost him, Parsalian. It seems I am not the only one to make mistakes. I never like to say I told you so, said Justarius grimly, but I told you so. Ladonna left for her chambers. Justarius returned to Palanthus via the corridors of magic. Parsalian was alone again. He resumed his seat in his chair by the dying fire, pondering all he had heard. He tried to concentrate on the dire news Ladonna had brought, but he found his thoughts straying to Raceland Magir. Perhaps I did make a mistake when I chose him to be my sword to fight evil, Parsalian mused. But given what I have heard this night, and what I know of Raceland Magir, perhaps I did not. Parsalian drank the last of the elven wine, then, tossing the lees into the glowing embers, dousing them, he went to his bed. Chapter 3 Memories, An Old Friend Third Day, Month of Mishamont Year 352 A.C. It wasn't the physical pain that clouded my mind. It was the old inner pain clawing at me, tearing at me with poisoned talons. Caraman, strong and cheerful, good and kind, open and honest. Caraman, everyone's friend. Not like Raceland, the runt, the sly one. All I ever had was my magic. I said, speaking clearly, thinking clearly, for the first time in my life. And now you have that, too. Using the wall for support, I raised both my hands, put my thumbs together. I began speaking the words, the words that would summon the magic. Raised! Caraman started to back away. Raised! What are you doing? Come on, you need me. I'll take care of you just like always. Raised? I'm your brother. I have no brother. Beneath the layer of cold, hard rock, jealousy bubbled and seethed. Tremors split the rock. Jealousy, red and molten, coursed through my body and flared out of my hands. The fire flared, billowed, and engulfed Caraman. A knocking on the door brought Raceland back abruptly to reality. He stirred in his chair and let go of the memory slowly and reluctantly, not because he enjoyed reliving that moment in time, far from it. The memory of his test in the Tower of High Sorcery was horrible, for it brought back the bitter pangs of jealous fury, the sight of Caraman being burned to death, the sound of his twin screams, the stench of charred flesh. Then, after that, having to face Caraman, who had been witness to his own death at his brother's hands, to see the pain in his eyes, far worse in some ways than the pain of dying. For it had all been illusion, a part of the test, to teach Raceland to know himself. He would not have brought it all back to mind, would have kept the memory locked away, but he was trying to learn something from it, so he had to endure it. The time was early morning, and he was in the small cell that he'd been given in the great library. 
The monks had carried him to the cell when they had thought he was dying. In the cell he had at last dared to look into the darkness of his own soul and dared meet the eyes that stared back at him. He had remembered the test, remembered the bargain he'd made with Fistandantilus in order to pass it. I said I was not to be bothered, Raceland called out, annoyed. Bothered? I'll bother him, a deep voice grumbled. I'll give him a good smack up the side of his head. You have a visitor, Master Majeer, called out Bertram in apologetic tones. He says he's an old friend of yours. He is concerned about your health. Of course he is, Raceland said sourly. He'd been expecting the visit, ever since he'd watched Flint start to cross the street to the library, only to change his mind. Flint would have spent the night brooding, but he would finally come. Not with Tass, he would come alone. Tell him to go away. Tell him you are busy. You have a great deal of work to do to prepare for your journey to Naraka. But even as Raceland was thinking these things, he was removing the magical spell that kept the door locked. He may enter, Raceland said. Bertram, his bald head glistening with sweat, cautiously shoved open the door and peered inside. At the sight of Raceland sitting in the chair, wearing gray robes, Bertram's eyes widened. But those are... you are... those are... Raceland glared at him. Say what you came to say and be gone. A visitor, Bertram repeated faintly, then hastened off, his sandals flapping on the stone floor. Flint thumped inside. The old dwarf stood glowering at Raceland from beneath his shaggy gray eyebrows. He crossed his arms over his chest beneath his long, flowing beard. He was wearing the studded leather armor the dwarf preferred over steel. The armor was new and was embossed with a rose, the symbol of the Salamnic Knights. Flint wore the same helm as always. He'd found the helm during one of their early adventures. Raceland could not remember where. The helm was decorated with a tail made of horsehair. Flint always held that it was the mane of a griffin, and nothing would disabuse him of that notion, not even the fact that griffins did not have manes. Only a few months had passed since they had last seen each other, but Raceland was shocked at the change in the dwarf. Flint had lost weight. His skin had a chalky tinge to it. His breathing was labored and his face was marred by new lines of sorrow and loss, weariness and worry. The old dwarf's eyes glaring at Raceland flared with the same gruff spirit. Neither spoke. Flint harumphed, clearing his throat as he cast sharp, swift glances around the cell, taking in the spell books lying on the desk the staff of Magius standing in the corner, the empty cup that had held his tea, all Raceland's possessions, nothing of Caraman. Flint frowned and scratched his nose, glancing from beneath lowered brows at Raceland and shifting uncomfortably. How much more uncomfortable he would be if he knew the truth, Raceland thought, that I left Caraman and Tanis and the others to die. He wished Flint had not come. The Kender said he saw you, Flint said, breaking the silence at last. He said you were dying. As you see, I am very much alive, Raceland said. Yes, well, 
Flint stroked his beard. You're wearing gray robes. What is that supposed to mean? That I sent my red ones to be washed, Raceland said, adding caustically, I am not so wealthy that I can afford an extensive wardrobe. He made an impatient gesture. Did you come here to stare at me and comment on my clothes, or did you have some purpose? I came because I was worried about you, Flint said, frowning. Raceland gave a sardonic smile. You did not come because you were worried about me. You came because you are worried about Tannis and Caraman. Well, and I have a right to be, don't I? What has become of them? Flint demanded, his face flushing, bringing some color into his gray cheeks. Raceland did not immediately respond. He could tell the truth. There was no reason he shouldn't. After all, he didn't give a damn what Flint thought of him, what any of them thought of him. He could tell the truth, that he had left them to die in the maelstrom. But Flint would be outraged. He might even attack Raceland in his fury. The old dwarf was no threat, but Raceland would be forced to defend himself. Flint could get hurt, and there would be a scene. The aesthetics would be in an uproar. They would throw him out, and he was not ready to leave. Lorana and Tass and I know you and the others escaped Tarsus, Flint said. We shared the dream. He looked extremely uncomfortable at admitting that. Raceland was intrigued. The dream in the nightmare land of Sylvanesti, King Lorak's dream, did you? How very interesting. He thought back, considering how that might be possible. I knew that the rest of us shared it, but that was because we were in the dream. I wonder how the rest of you came to experience it. Gilthanus said it was the Star Jewel, the one Alhanna gave Sturm in Tarsus. Alhanna said something about that. Yes, it could be a Star Jewel. They are powerful magical artifacts. The Sturm still have it. It was buried with him said Flint gruffly. Sturm's dead. He was killed at the Battle of the High Clarist's Tower. I am sorry to hear that, Raceland said, and he was surprised to realize he truly was. Sturm died a hero, said Flint. He fought a blue dragon alone. Then he died a fool, Raceland remarked. Flint's face flushed. What about Caraman? Why isn't he here? He would never leave you. He'd die first. He may be dead now, said Raceland. Perhaps they all are. I do not know. Did you kill him? Flint asked, his flush deepening. Yes, I killed him, Raceland thought. He was engulfed in flames. Instead, he said, The door is behind you. Please shut it on your way out. Flint tried to speak, but he could only sputter with rage. Finally, he managed to blurt out, I don't know why I came. I said good riddance when I heard you were dying, and I say good riddance now. He turned on his heel and stomped angrily across the floor. He had reached the door and flung it open and was about to walk out when Raceland spoke. You're having problems with your heart, Raceland said, talking to Flint's back. You are not well. You are experiencing pain, dizziness, 
shortness of breath. You tire easily. Am I right? Flint stopped where he stood in the doorway to the small cell, his hand on the handle. If you do not take it easy, Raceland continued, your heart will burst. Flint glanced around over his shoulder. How long do I have? Death could come at any moment, Raceland said. You must rest. Rest! There's a war on, Flint said loudly. Then he coughed and wheezed and pressed his hand to chest. Seeing Raceland watching him, he muttered, We can't all die heroes, and stumped off, forgetting as he left to shut the door. Raceland, sighing, rose to his feet and shut it for him. Caraman screamed, tried to beat out the flames, but there was no escaping the magic. His body withered, dwindled in the fire, became the body of a wizened old man, an old man wearing black robes whose hair and beard were trailing wisps of fire. Fistandantilus, his hand outstretched, walked toward me. If your armor is dross, said the old man softly, I will find the crack. I could not move, could not defend myself. The magic had sapped the last of my strength. Vistandantilus stood before me. The old man's black robes were tattered shreds of night. His flesh was rotting and decayed. The bones were visible through the skin. His nails were long and pointed, as long as those of a corpse. His eyes gleamed with the radiant heat that had been in my soul, the warmth that had brought the dead to life. A bloodstone hung from a pendant around the fleshless neck. The old man's hand touched my breast, caressed my flesh, teasing and tormenting. Fist and Dantilus plunged his hand into my chest and seized hold of my heart. As the dying soldier clasps his hands around the haft of the spear that has torn through his body, I seized hold of the old man's wrist, clamped my fingers in a grip that death would not have relaxed. Caught, trapped, Vistandantilus thought to break my grip, but he could not free himself and retain his hold on my heart. The white light of Solinari, the red light of Lunatari, and the black, empty light of Nuitari, light that I could see, merged in my fainting vision, stared down at me, an unwinking eye. You may take my life, I said, keeping fast hold of the old man's wrist, as Fist and Dantilus kept hold of my heart, but you will serve me in return. The eye winked and blinked out. Raceland removed a soft leather pouch from the belt he wore around his waist. He reached his hand into the pouch and drew out what appeared to be a small ball made of colored glass, very like a child's marble. He rolled the glass ball around in the palm of his hand, watching the colors writhe and swirl inside. You grow to be a nuisance, old man, Raceland said softly, and he didn't give a damn if Vistandantilus heard him or not. He had a plan, and there was nothing the undead wizard could do to stop him. Chapter 4 The Cursed Tower The Dragon Orb Silence Fourth day, month of Mishamont, year 352 A.C. The new black robes were still slightly damp around the seams, 
and they smelled faintly of almond. The scent came from the indigo, the dyer told him. Raislin was also convinced he could detect the odor of urine, which was used to set the dye, despite the dyer's assurance that the robes had been rinsed a great many times and that the smell was all in his imagination. The dyer offered to keep the robes and rinse them again, but Raislin could not afford to take the time. His biggest fear was that the Dark Queen would win her war before he had a chance to join her, impress her with his skill, and acquire her help in furthering his career. He pictured in his mind becoming a leader among the black robes of the Tower of High Sorcery in Naraka, her capital city. He pictured the tower itself. It must be magnificent. He supposed the wizard Ladonna lived there, if she were still head of the Order of Black. He grimaced at the thought of having to abase himself before the old crone, treat her as his superior. He'd have to explain why he had taken the black robes without seeking her permission. Ah, well, his servitude would not last long. With the support of the Dark Queen, Raislin would be able to rise above them all. He would have no more need of them. His ambitious dreams would be fulfilled. Your dreams? Bistandantilus snarled, his voice pounding like blood in Raislin's ears. Your dreams are my dreams. I spent a lifetime, many lifetimes, working toward my goal, becoming the master of past and present. No sniveling, hacking upstart will steal it. Raislin kept his own thoughts in check, refusing to be drawn into battle before he was ready. He walked rapidly, unerringly through the night toward his destination, toward his destiny. The staff of Magius lit his way, the orb held in the dragon's claw shining softly, illuminating the dark streets that in this part of the city were very dark and very empty. No lights shone in the windows, most of which were broken. No laughter rang from within the tumble-down buildings. The streets were deserted. No one, not even the fearless Kender, dared venture into the shadow of the Tower of High Sorcery, not by day, and especially not by night. The Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus had once been the most beautiful of all the Towers of High Sorcery. Named the Lore Spire, the tower was to be dedicated to the search of wisdom and knowledge. The tower graced Palanthus, its wizards assisting the knights to fight Queen Tachesis in the Third Dragon War. The wizards of all three orders came together to create the fabled dragon orbs and use them to lure the evil dragons into a trap. Tachesis was driven into the abyss, and the White Tower of the Wizards and the High Clarist's Tower of the Knights were both proud guardians of Salamnia. Then came the rise of the King Priests, who dictated that sorcery was evil. The Knights were strong supporters of the King Priests, and they came to view the Wizards with distrust, and finally demanded that the Wizards abandon the Tower. Two Towers of High Sorcery had already been attacked, and the wizards had destroyed them with devastating results to the populaces of those cities. The wizards of Palanthus decided to surrender their tower. The lord of Palanthus had intended to take over the tower for his own use, as the king-priest had taken over the tower of Istar. 
But before the Lord could turn the key in the lock, a black-robed wizard named Andras Ramak cast a curse upon it. The crowd who had gathered to rejoice in the eviction of the wizards watched in horror as Ramak cried out, The gates will remain closed and the halls empty until the day comes when the master of past and present returns with power. Then he had leaped from the tower and was impaled upon the barbs of the fence. As his blood flowed over the iron, he spoke a curse with his dying breath. The beautiful tower was transformed into a thing of evil, horrible to look upon. Almost four hundred years had passed, and no one had dared come too near it. Many had tried, but few could summon up the courage to come within sight of the dread Shoikin Grove, a forest of oak trees that stood guard around the tower. No one knew what went on in the grove. No one who entered the grove ever returned to tell. Raceland was here in this part of Palanthus because he had magic to perform, and it was vital that he be left alone. Any interruption, such as Bertram knocking on his door, might well be fatal. The tower's twisted remains came into view, blotting out the stars, blotting out the light of the two moons, Solinari and Lunatari. Nuitari, the dark moon, was still visible, though only to the eyes of those who had been initiated into the dark god's secrets. Raceland kept his eyes upon the dark moon and drew courage from it. He pressed steadily on, even though he could feel the terror that flowed in a bone-chilling river from the tower. Fear lapped at his feet. He shivered and drew his robes closer around him and went on. Fear grew deeper. He began to sweat. His hands trembled, his breath came fast, and he was afraid he would have a coughing fit. He gripped the staff of Magius tightly, and though the shadow of the tower snuffed out every other light in the world, the staff's light did not fail him. The river of terror grew so deep that he could barely find the courage to put one foot in front of the other. Death awaited him. The next step would be his doom. Still, he took that step. Gritting his teeth, he took another. Turn back, Vistandantilus urged him, his voice hammering inside Raceland's brain. You are mad to think of trying to destroy me. You need me. You need me, Race, Caraman's voice said, pleading. I can protect you. Shut up, Raceland said, both of you. He came within sight of the Shoikin Grove, and he shuddered and closed his eyes. He could not go on, not without risking dying of the terror. He was far from the populated part of the city. It would do. He searched around for a suitable place to cast his spell. Nearby was an empty building with three gables and leaded pane windows. According to the sign that dangled at a crazy angle from a hook, the building had once been a tavern known as the Wizard's Hat a name suitable for a tavern located near the Tower of High Sorcery of Palanthus. The painted sign was extremely faded, but by the light of the staff, Raceland could see a laughing wizard quaffing ale from a pointed hat. Raceland was reminded of the senile old wizard Fizban, who had worn and continually mislaid a hat that looked very much like the one portrayed on the sign. The memory of Fizban made Raceland uncomfortable, and he quickly banished it. He walked over to the door and shoved on it. 
The door creaked on rusty hinges and swung slowly open. Raislin was about to enter when he had the feeling he was being watched. He told himself that was nonsense. No one in his right mind came to this part of the city. Just to reassure himself, he cast a glance around the street. He saw no one, and he was about to enter the tavern when he happened to look up at the sign. The painted eyes of the wizard were fixed on him. As he stared, one eye winked. Raceland shivered. The thought came to him that if he failed, he would die there, and no one would ever know what had happened to him. His body would not be found. He would die and be forgotten, a pebble washed away in the river of time. Don't be an idiot, Raceland chided himself. He stared hard at the sign. It was a trick of the light. He walked swiftly into the abandoned tavern and shut the door behind himself. All that time, Fistandantilus was berating him. I cast the curse of Ronak. I am the master of past and present. You are nothing, a nobody. Without me, you would have failed your test in the tower. Without me, Raceland returned, you would be lost and adrift in the vastness of the universe. A voice without a mouth, a scream no one can hear. You have used my knowledge, Fistandantilus said. I have fed you my power. I spoke the words that mastered the dragon orb, said Raceland. I tell you the words to speak, Fistandantilus retorted. You do, Raceland agreed, and all the while you mean to destroy me. You will wait until my life force gives you strength, and then you will use it to kill me. You plan to become me. I won't let that happen. Fistandantilus laughed. <laughs> my hand holds your heart. We are bound together. If you kill me, you will die. I am not convinced of that. Still, I will not take a chance, said Raceland. I do not intend to kill you. He sat down upon a dust-covered bench. The tavern's interior was much as it had been centuries before, when the tavern had been a popular place for the wizards and their pupils to congregate. There was no bar, but there were tables surrounded by comfortable chairs. Raceland would have expected the room to be filled with cobwebs and overrun by rats, but apparently even spiders and rodents were loath to live within the shadow of the tower, for the dust lay thick and smooth and undisturbed. A mural on the wall portrayed the three gods of magic toasting each other with mugs of foaming ale. Raceland looked around the empty tables and chairs, and he imagined wizards sitting there, laughing, telling tales, discussing their work. Raceland saw himself seated there, discoursing, studying, arguing with his fellows. He would have been accepted for what he was, not reviled. He would have been loved, admired, respected. Instead, he was alone in the darkness with the specter of evil. Raceland leaned the staff of Magius against the table, propping it with a chair so it would shed its pure white light on the table. A cloud of dust rose as he sat down, and he sneezed and coughed. When the coughing fit ended, he took the orb from its pouch and placed it on the table. Fistandantilus had gone quiet. Raceland could no longer mask his thoughts from the old man, for he had to concentrate his entire being 
on taking control of the dragon orb. Bistandantalus saw the danger he was in, and he was trying to find a way to save himself. Raceland placed the dragon orb on the table, steadying the small globe so it did not roll off onto the floor. He took from another pouch a crudely carved wooden stand he had constructed during those days when he and Caraman and the others had traveled by wagon across Ancelon. Raceland had been happy then, happier than he had been in a long time. He and his brother had rediscovered some of their old camaraderie, remembering what it was like in their mercenary days when it had been just the two of them relying on steel and magic for their survival. He brushed dust from the table off the dragon orb and brushed the dust of caramon from his mind. He placed the orb in the center of the wooden stand. The orb was cold to the touch. He could see in the staff's light the varied shades of green swirling around slowly inside. He knew what to expect, having used the orb before, and he waited, counseling patience, battling fear. He thought back to the writings of an elf wizard named Fiel Thos, who had once possessed a dragon orb. Raceland recalled one line. Every time you try to gain control of a dragon orb, the dragon inside is trying to gain control of you. The dragon orb began to grow to its original size, about the span of his hand measured with his fingers spread wide from the tip of his thumb to the tip of his little finger. He reached out to the orb. You will regret this, Fistandantilus said. I will add it to my list, Raceland said, and he placed his hands upon the cold crystal of the dragon orb. Ast bilak, maui paralan. Satantan Gusar. He spoke the words he had learned from Fistandantilus. He spoke them once, then spoke them a second time. The green color swirling around in the orb was subsumed by a myriad of colors, all whirling so rapidly that if he looked at them they would make him dizzy. He shut his eyes. The crystal was cold, painful to the touch. He kept firm hold of it. The pain would ease, only to be replaced by far worse. He said the words a third time and opened his eyes. A light glowed in the orb, a strange light formed of all the colors of the spectrum. He likened it to a dark rainbow. Two hands appeared in the orb. The hands reached out for his hands. Raceland drew in a deep breath and took hold of the hands, clasped them tightly. He was confident, felt no fear. In the past the hands had supported him, soothed him as a mother soothes a child, and he was startled, alarmed, to feel the hands close over his in a crushing grip. The table, the chair, the staff, the tavern, the street, the tower, Palanthus, everything disappeared. Darkness, not the living darkness of night, but the horrible darkness of everlasting nothingness surrounded him. The hands pulled on his hands, trying to drag him into the void, he exerted all his will, all his energy. All was not enough. The hands were stronger. They were going to drag him down. He looked at the hands and saw to his horror that they were not the hands of the orb. The flesh of the hands had rotted and fallen off. The nails were long and bone yellow like those of a corpse. The bloodstone pendant, its green surface spattered with the blood of so many young mages whose lives the old man had stolen, 
dangled from the scrawny neck. The battle sapped Raceland's fragile strength. He coughed, spitting blood, and since he dared not let go of the hands, he was forced to wipe his mouth on the sleeve of his new black robes. He spoke to the dragon, Viper, whose essence was trapped inside the orb. Viper, you acknowledge me as your master, he said to the dragon. You have served me in the past. Why do you abandon me now? The dragon answered, Because you are prideful and weak. Like the elf king Lorak, you fell into my trap. Lorak was the wretched king who had been arrogant enough to think he could control the dragon orb. The orb had seized control of Lorak and duped him into destroying Sylvanesti, the ancient elven homeland. He destroyed what he loved most. I destroyed Caraman, Raceland said feverishly, not even thinking about what he was saying. The dragon has duped me. The hands tightened their grip and pulled him inexorably into the endless emptiness. Raceland fought against it with a strength born of desperation. He had no idea what was going on, why the orb had turned on him. His arms trembled from the strain. He was sweating in the black robes. He was growing weaker. You float on the surface of Time's River, Raceland gasped, struggling for breath against the choking sensation in his throat. The future, the past, the present flow around you. You touch all planes of existence. That is true. I have an enemy on one of those planes. I know. Raceland looked into the orb, looked beyond the hands. He could see on the other side of the River of Time the face of Fistandantilus. Raceland had seen rats on battlefields swarming over the corpses of the dead. He'd watched them devour flesh, strip it from the bones. The ruins the rats left behind were all that was left of the old man. His eyes remained, burning with resolve and ruthless determination. His skeletal hands held Raceland fast, one hand on his hand, one hand on his heart. Fistandantilus was fighting Raceland for control of the dragon orb, and he was using Raceland's own life force to do it. I see the irony does not escape you, said Fistandantilus. His voice softened, grew almost gentle. Stop fighting me, young magus. No need to continue to endure the struggle, the pain, the fear that is your wretched life. You stand before me naked and vulnerable and alone. All those who ever cared for you now loathe and despise you. You do not even have the magic. Your skills, your talent, your power come from me. And deep inside, you know it. He speaks the truth, Raceland thought in despair. I have no skill of my own. He told me the words to the spells. His knowledge gave me power. He watched over me, protected me, as Caraman watched over me. And now Caraman is gone, and I have no one and nothing. He is wrong. You have the magic. The voice that spoke was his voice, and it came from his soul and drowned out the seductive voice of Fistandantilus. I have the magic, said Raceland aloud. 
and he knew that pronouncement to be the truth. For him it was the only truth. He grew stronger as he spoke. The words may have been your words, but the voice was mine. My eyes read the runes. My hand scattered the rose petals of sleep and flared with magical fire of death. I hold the key. I know myself. I know my weaknesses, and I know my worth. I know the darkness and the light. It was my strength, my power, my wisdom that mastered this dragon orb. Raceland drew in a deep breath, and life filled his lungs. His heartbeat was strong and vital. For a moment, the curse that had been laid on his hourglass eyes was lifted. He no longer saw all things withering with age. He saw himself. I have been afraid all my life. I fell victim to you because of my fear. He saw his foe as a shadow of himself, cast across space and time. Raceland gripped the hands firmly, confidently. I am afraid no longer. Our bargain is broken. I sever the tie. Only death severs our tie, said Fistandantilus. Seize him, Raceland commanded. The blue and red, black and green, and white lights inside the orb swirled violently, dazzling Raceland's eyes and bursting inside his head. The colors coalesced with green predominant. The dragon, Viper, began to form inside the orb, various parts of the beast visible to Raceland as it thrashed about, a fiery eye, a green wing, a lashing tail, a horned snout and snarling mouth, dripping fangs, ripping claws. The eye glared at Raceland, and then shifted its glare to Fistandantilus. Viper lifted his wings, and still inside the orb, he soared through time and space. Fistandantilus saw his danger. He looked frantically around, seeking some means of escape. His refuge had become his prison. He could not flee the plane of his tenuous existence. To use your magic against the dragon, you must have your hands free, Raceland said. Let go of me, and I'll let go of you. Fistandantilus swore, and his grip on Raceland tightened. Raceland's shoulder and arm muscles burned, and his hands trembled with the strain. He could see in the mists of the dragon orb, the dragon, Viper, swooping down on the wizard. Fistandantilus shouted words of magic. They came out as so much meaningless drivel. With one hand caught in Raceland's grip and the other clutching his heart, Fistandantilus could not use the gestures needed to unleash the power of his spell. He could not trace the runes in the air, could not cast balls of flame or send spiked lightning jabbing from his fingers. The dragon opened his fanged mouth and extended his talons. Raceland was almost finished, yet he would not let go. If the strain killed him, death would only tighten his grip, not break it. Fistandantilus set him free. Raceland sank onto the table, gasping for breath. Though his hands were weak and shaking, he managed to keep his hold on the dragon orb. Let go of me, Fistandantilus raved. Release me. That was our bargain. I do not have hold of you, said Raceland. He heard a shriek of rage and saw a rush of green. The dragon was returning to the dragon orb. Raceland stared inside the orb into the swirling mists. He saw the face of an old man 
a ravaged face, gnawed by time. Fleshless hands beat against the crystal walls of his prison. His yammering mouth shrieked threats. Raislin waited tensely to hear the voice in his head. The mouth gibbered and gabbled, and Raislin smiled. He heard nothing. All was silence. He ran his hand over the smooth, cold surface of the dragon orb, and it began to shrink in size. When it was no larger than a marble, he picked it up and dropped it into the pouch. He dismantled the crude stand and slid the pieces into a pocket of his black robes. He paused a moment before he left the tavern to look around at the empty tables and chairs. He could see the wizards sitting there, drinking elven wine and dwarven ale. One day I will come here, Raceland told them. I will sit with you and drink with you. We will toast the magic. One day, when I am the master of past and present, I will travel through time. I will come back, and when I come back, I will succeed where he failed. Raceland drew the cowl of his black robes over his head and left the wizard's hat. Fifth Day, Month of Mishamont, Year 352 A.C. Raislin woke that morning after a sound night's sleep, a sleep uninterrupted by coughing fits. He drew in a deep breath of the morning air and felt it fill his lungs. He breathed freely. His heart beat strong and vibrantly. He was hungry and ate the bread soaked in milk, which was the monk's breakfast, with relish. He was well. He was whole. Tears of joy stung his eyes. He brushed them away and packed up his few belongings, his spell components, his spell books, and the staff of Magius. He was ready to depart, but first he had an errand to run. He needed to repay his debt to Astinus, who had given him, albeit inadvertently, the key, self-knowledge. And he owed a debt to the aesthetics who had cared for him, fed him, and clothed him. Raislin sought out Bertram, who was generally to be found hovering near Astinus's chamber, guarding his privacy or ready to dash forth at his command. Bertram's eyes widened at the sight of Raislin's black robes. The aesthetic swallowed several times. His hands fluttered nervously, but he blocked the way to Astinus's chamber. I don't care what you do to me. You will not harm the master, said Bertram bravely. I came only to take my leave of Astinus, Raceland said. Bertram cast a fearful glance at the door. The master is not to be disturbed. I think he will want to see me, said Raceland quietly, and he advanced a step. Bertram stumbled back a step and bumped up against the door. I am quite certain he would not. The door flew open, causing Bertram to fall inside, nearly trampling Astinus. Bertram ducked out of the way and flattened himself against the wall, trying in vain to become one with the marble. What is this banging and shouting outside my door? Astinus demanded in acerbic tones. I cannot work with all this commotion. I am leaving Palanthus, sir. Raceland said. I wanted to thank you. I have nothing to say to you, Raceland, my dear, said Astinus, preparing to shut the door. Bertram, 
Since you are a failure at providing me with the peace and quiet I desire, you will escort this gentleman out. Bertram's face flushed with shame. He sidled out the door and, greatly daring, plucked at Raceland's black sleeve. This way. Wait, sir, Raceland said, and he thrust his staff into the doorway to prevent Astinus from closing the door. I ask you the question you asked me the day I arrived. What do you see when you look at me? I see Raceland Majir, Astinus replied, glowering. You do not see your old friend, Raceland said. I don't know what you're talking about, Astinus said, and again he tried to shut the door. Bertram tugged harder at Raceland's black sleeve. You must not disturb the master. Raceland ignored him and spoke to Astinus. When I lay dying, you said to me, So this ends your journey, my old friend. Your old friend, this Dandantilus, the wizard who crafted the sphere of time for you. Look into my eyes, sir. Look into the hourglass pupils that are my constant torment. Do you see your old friend? I do not, said Astinus after a moment. Then he added with a shrug, So you won. I won, said Raceland proudly. I came to pay my debt. Astinus made a gesture as though brushing away gnats. You owe me nothing. I always pay my debts, Raceland said sharply. He reached into a pocket of the black velvet robes and drew out a scroll wrapped in black ribbon. I thought, Perhaps you would like this. It is an account of the battle between us. For your records. He held out the scroll. Astinus hesitated a moment. Then he took the scroll. Raceland removed the staff, and Astinus slammed shut the door. I know the way out, Raceland told Bertram. The master said I was to escort you, said Bertram. And he not only walked with Raceland to the door but accompanied him down the marble stairs and out into the street. I washed the gray robes and left them folded on the bed, Raceland said. Thank you for the use of them. Of course, said Bertram, babbling with relief at finally being rid of this strange visitor. Any time. He flushed suddenly and stammered. That is, I don't mean any time. Raceland smiled at the aesthetic's discomfiture. He reached into his pouch and clasped his hand around the dragon orb and made ready to cast his spell. It would be the first powerful spell he had cast without hearing that whispering voice in his head. He had bragged that the power was his. He would finally know whether or not he had spoken the truth. Gripping the staff of Magius in one hand and the dragon orb in the other, Raceland spoke the words of magic. Berdulan Chapatalam Berluatana. A portal opened in the midst of space and time. He looked through it and saw the black, twisted spires of a temple. Raceland had never been to Naraka, but he had spent time in the great library reading descriptions of the city. He recognized the temple of Tekesis. Raceland entered the portal. He looked out of it 
to see poor Bertram, his eyes bulging, frantically pawing the empty air with his hands. Sir, where have you gone? Sir? Unable to find his vanished guest, Bertram gulped and turned and fled up the stairs to the library, running as fast as his sandaled feet would carry him. The portal closed behind Raceland and opened on his new life. Book Two, Chapter One, The Court of the Night Lord, Fifth Day, Month of Mishamont, Year 352 A.C. Iolantha's formal title was Wizardess to the Emperor. She was known informally as Ariacus's Witch, or by other names even less flattering, though those were spoken only behind her back. No one dared say them to her face, for the witch was powerful. The guards at the red gate saluted as she approached them. The temple of Tachesis had six gates. The main gate was in the front. That gate, the queen's gate, was manned by eight dark pilgrims whose duty was to escort visitors through the temple. Five other gates were placed at various points around the temple's perimeter. Each of those gates opened into the camp of one of the five dragon armies, which were fighting the Dark Queen's War of Conquest. Iolantha avoided the main gate, for although she was the Emperor's mistress and under his protection, she was a wielder of magic, a worshipper of the gods of magic, and though one of those gods was the Dark Queen's son, the Dark Pilgrims viewed any wizard with deep suspicion and mistrust. The Dark Pilgrims would have allowed her to enter the temple, not even the Night Lord, who was the head of the Holy Order of Tachesis, dared incur the wrath of the Emperor. But the clerics would have made her visit as unpleasant as possible, insulting her, demanding to know her business, and finally insisting upon sending one of the loathsome pilgrims as an escort. By contrast, the draconians of the Red Dragon Army, who were charged with guarding the Red Gate, fell over their clawed feet to be accommodating to the beautiful wizardess. A languishing glance from her lavender eyes, which glittered like amethysts beneath her long black eyelashes, a gentle brush of her slender fingers on the civac's scaly arm, a charming smile from carnelian lips, and the civac commander was only too happy to permit Iolantha to enter the temple. You are here late, Mistress Irelantha, said the Civac. It is well after dark watch. Not a good time to walk the halls of the temple alone. Would you like me to accompany you? Thank you, Commander. I would appreciate the company, Iolantha replied, and she fell into step beside him. He was new and she tried to recall his name. Commander Slith, isn't it? Yes, madam, said the Civac, with a grin and a gallant flick of his wings. Iolantha found the Temple of Tachesis to be an unnerving place even during the daylight hours. Not that much daylight ever managed to beat its way inside, but at least the knowledge that the sun was shining somewhere made her feel better. Iolantha had sometimes been forced to walk the halls of the temple after dark, and she had not liked it. The dark pilgrims, those clerics who were dedicated to the worship of the dark queen, 
performed their unhallowed rites in the hours of darkness. Iolantha's own hands were far from clean, but at least she washed the blood of victims from her fingers. She did not drink it. Iolantha had another reason for wanting an armed escort. The Night Lord hated her, and he would have rejoiced to see her buried in sand up to her neck with buzzards pecking out her eyes and ants devouring her flesh. She was safe, at least for the moment. Ariacus held his strong hand over her, at least for the moment. Iolantha knew quite well that he would eventually tire of her. Then his strong hand would either be clenched to a fist, or worse, wave dismissively. She did not think the time had yet come for him to want to get rid of her. Even if he did, Ariacus would not hand her over to the dark clerics. He disliked and distrusted the Night Lord as much as the Night Lord disliked and distrusted him. Ariacus was the type to simply strangle her. What brings you to the temple at this hour, madame? Slith asked. Not here for the dark watch service, are you? Gods, no, said Iolantha with a shiver. The night lord sent someone to fetch me. She was wakened in the middle of the night by one of the dark pilgrims shouting outside the window of her dwelling, which was located above a mageware shop. The cleric would not risk contaminating himself by actually knocking on a wizard's door, and so he yelled from the street, waking the neighbors who opened their windows, prepared to fling the contents of their chamber pots on whoever was making that ungodly racket. Seeing the black robes of a cleric of Tachesis and hearing him invoke the name of the night lord, the neighbors slammed shut their windows and probably went to hide under their beds. The dark pilgrim did not wait to escort her. His task done, he hastened off before Iolantha could dress and find out what was going on. She had never before been summoned to the temple of Tachesis by the night lord, and she didn't like it. She had been forced to traverse the dangerous streets of Naraka after dark by herself. She had conjured a ball of bright, glowing light and held it crackling in the palm of her hand. It was not a difficult spell, but it was showy and would mark her as a user of magic. The outlaws who roamed the streets would know immediately that she was not an easy mark, and they would steer clear of her. The streets had been sparsely populated. Most of the troops were off fighting the Dark Queen's War. Unfortunately, those soldiers who remained in Naraka were in a surly mood. Rumor had it that Tachesis's war, which had been as good as won, was not going so well after all. A group of five human soldiers, wearing the insignia of the Red Army, had eyed her as she walked past the alley in which they were sharing a jug of dwarven spirits. They had called to her to come join them. When she had haughtily ignored them, two of the soldiers were inclined to take their chances and accost her. One, less drunk than the others, had recognized her as Ariacus's witch, and after some heated discussion they had let her alone. The very fact that they had insulted Ariacus's mistress boded ill. In the early glory days of the war, those soldiers would have never dared speak of Ariacus by name, much less make crude remarks about his prowess, 
or offer to show her what a real man was like in bed. Iolantha had not been in any danger from them. The soldiers would have been five greasy piles of ash in the street if they had attacked her. But she found it instructive to note the volatile mood of the troops. Dragon High Lord Kitiara would be interested to hear what she had to report. Iolantha wondered if Kit had returned yet from Flotsam. As Iolantha and her draconian escort proceeded to enter the temple, Iolantha told Commander Slith she had no idea where the Night Lord was to be found. The Sivak said he would ask. Iolantha liked the Sivak. Oddly enough, she liked the draconian soldiers, whom most humans reviled as lizard men, due to the fact that they had been created from the eggs of the good dragons. The draconians were far more disciplined than their human counterparts. They were far more intelligent than goblins and ogres and hobgoblins. They were excellent fighters. Some of them were skilled magic users and would have made good commanders, but most humans looked down on them and refused to serve under them. Slith was a Sivak draconian, born from the murdered young of a silver dragon. Slith had scales that were shining silver with black tips. He had silver-gray wings, which would carry him short distances, and he was a talented magic user. He offered to remove the magical traps that Iolantha herself had laid upon the hall, traps that emulated the various breath weapons of each of the five dragons to which each gate was dedicated. The trap she had placed on the red gate filled the hall with blazing fire that would immediately incinerate any being caught trespassing. Iolantha accepted. She could have removed the magic herself, but dispersing the spell required effort, and she wanted to reserve her strength to deal with whatever lay behind the mysterious summons. Accompanied by the draconian, Iolantha swept through the halls of the Dark Queen's temple, her black cloak trimmed with black bear fur, sweeping majestically behind her. She was wearing sumptuous black velvet robes, a gift for passing her test in the tower from her mentor and teacher, LaDonna. The robes looked plain, but if one looked closely in certain lights and knew what to look for, one could see runes traced in the fabric's nap. The runes overlapped like chain mail with much the same effect. They would protect her from harm, either spell-based or an assassin's dagger. The clerics of Tachesis were forbidden to use bladed weapons, but they were not forbidden from hiring those who could. A dark pilgrim told the Sivak that the Night Lord was in the court of the Inquisitor, located in the dungeon level of the temple. Iolantha had been in the dungeons, and they were not high on her list of places in Crin to visit. The temple itself was horrid enough. Built partially on the physical plane and partly within the Dark Queen's realm of the Abyss, the temple was here and not there, there but not here. Unreality was real, existence was non-existent. One hesitated to sit in a chair for fear it wasn't a chair, or that it would move to the other side of the room or simply vanish. Halls that appeared to be short went on forever. Long corridors ended way too soon. Rooms seemed to move, so nothing was where it had been previously. Ariacus maintained chambers there, as did all the dragon high lords, 
none of them liked residing in the temple and rarely set foot in their apartments. Ariacus had once said he always heard Tachesis' voice hissing in his ear, Don't grow too comfortable. You may be powerful, but don't ever forget that I am your queen. It was no surprise that the high lords preferred to sleep in the crude tents of their military camps or in a small room in the city's inns rather than the luxurious bedrooms in the dark queen's temple. Ariacus had actually acquired his own mansion, the Red Mansion, in order to avoid having to entertain high-ranking guests in the temple. Iolantha wondered, not for the first time, how the clerics of Tachesis who resided there did not succumb to madness. Perhaps it was because they were all lunatics to begin with. She was glad she had brought Commander Slith along, for she soon became hopelessly lost. The temple was busy at night. Iolantha tried to shut her ears to the horrible sounds. The commander, being new to the temple himself, had to ask a dark pilgrim to escort them to the dungeon level. The pilgrim inclined her head. She did not speak, and was silent and sepulchral as a wraith. I have been summoned by the night lord, Iolantha explained. The dark pilgrim looked Iolantha up and down. The pilgrim pursed her lips in disapproval, but at last decided to deign to escort her. I heard there was trouble, the woman said grimly. She was tall and gaunt. All the dark pilgrims seemed to be either tall and gaunt or short and gaunt. Perhaps serving in the temple took away one's appetite. Iolantha knew it certainly did hers. What kind of trouble? Iolantha asked, startled. If there was trouble in the temple, why should the night lord summon her? Judging from the agonized screams of the tortured, he was quite capable of dealing with trouble on his own. Why should it involve me? The pilgrim appeared to feel that she had said too much already. She clamped her lips shut. Creepy bastards, these pilgrims. Make my scales crawl, said Slith. You should keep your voice down, Commander, Iolantha said quietly. The walls have ears. The walls have feet, too. Have you noticed the spooky way they jump around? Said Slith. I'll be glad to get out of this place. Iolantha heartily agreed. The pilgrim led them to the court of the Inquisitor. The pilgrim would not permit Slith to enter. He offered to wait outside for Iolantha, but the pilgrim shook her head at even that, and he was forced to depart. Iolantha hated this place. She hated the dreadful sounds and awful sights and noxious smells that always filled her with a nameless terror. The dark pilgrim eyed her with a smug expression, hoping and expecting to see her give way to her fear. Iolantha gathered up the skirt of her robes and swept past the woman and entered the court of the Inquisitor. The room was large and dark, save for a shaft of harsh light that beamed down from some unknown source, forming a pool of light in the center. At the far end, the night lord sat on a raised, judicial-looking bench. The executioner, known as the adjudicator, stood off to one side. Responsible for inflicting torture and performing executions 
The adjudicator was short and stocky and powerfully built. He had no neck to speak of and bulging arm muscles which he was enormously proud of and liked to show off. Though he wore long black robes, the same as the other clerics, he had removed the sleeves, the better to exhibit his biceps. Dark pilgrims, acting as guards, ranged around the room, keeping in the shadows. Iolantha entered cautiously, unable to see her way clearly, for the bright pool of light made the surrounding darkness that much darker. The night lord could have prayed to his queen and been given the power to fill the room with unholy light if he had chosen. He preferred to hold his court in the shadows. By placing the victim in the harsh light and leaving the rest of the room in darkness, he made his victim feel isolated, alone, exposed. Iolantha remained standing near the door more by instinct than because she would have any hope of escape if something went wrong. She bowed to the night lord. He was an elderly human, somewhere in his seventies, of medium height, thin and wiry, with his long gray hair, which was always neatly combed, and his kindly and benevolent face, the night lord had the appearance of a benign old gentleman. Until you looked into his eyes, the night lord saw the darkest depths of evil to which the soul of man can sink, and he reveled in the sight. He took joy in the pain and suffering of others. The adjudicator inflicted the torture as the night lord watched, reacting to the screams and torment in perverse ways that caused even those who served him to regard him with fear and loathing. The night lord's eyes were as dispassionate as those of a shark, as empty as those of a snake. The only time anyone ever saw his eyes gleam was when he was in the throes of his horrid pleasures. He made Iolantha's gorge rise, and she was not one to give way easily to fear. She was, after all, the mistress to Ariacus, the second most dangerous man in Ancelon. Even the emperor grudgingly acknowledged that the night lord was the first. With those horrid eyes fixed on her, Iolantha would not give the man the satisfaction of seeing her cower. She made him a slight bow. Then, as if bored by the sight of him, she shifted her gaze to his prisoner. She saw to her vast astonishment that the prisoner was a mage, that he was young, and that he was wearing the black robes. Her heart sank. No wonder the night lord had summoned her. You are in a great deal of trouble, Mistress Iolantha said the night lord in his mild voice. As you see, we have captured your spy. 